following program is brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Hey, Rick. Hey, so for recording, I think we should make everyone aware that you and everybody else, me included, are now entering the transcontinental humoric force field. So explain what you mean by that. (laughs) Well, basically, we're going to have some fun. And, you know, the world can be such a very serious place, particularly as of late. So this was really your suggestion more than mine, although I did a show on humor only a few weeks ago and thought, you know, it's nice to take a break and maybe nice to get out of this kind of commercialized season that we're in and just have a good time. Yes. And with a bit of offbeat irreverence thrown in for good measure (laughs) because that's the way i i most enjoy the holiday season can you give me an example of how how you've done that in the past well i'm such an iconoclast that i just gravitate towards any kind of counter-cultural approach to holidays And and here's an example this recent thanksgiving we did it on saturday two days later And why? Mainly because my daughter came in from out of town and she arrived the day after Thanksgiving. So we just decided to postpone it. And I love the idea of thumbing my nose at tradition. (laughs) I think it might be in your DNA, Tonio. (laughs) I'm not sure if it's in my DNA, but I've certainly picked it up somewhere, if, if not. Well, I know, and I think we we share a similarity here, which is that for me, having kind of the heavy hands of the status quo growing up, I could see very quickly how boring it was. So, of course, we got into sarcastic humor when we were kids, and the same thing, that sort of irreverence of what can we do to make this different than what is basically expected of all of us? Oh, yeah. When I was in high school, homeroom, They were friends in high school, fortunately, and we had very dark humor and dark perspective of humanity. In fact, we outright called ourselves, what is the term? Misanthropists? Is that it? Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, we thought of ourselves as the scourge of the earth <laughs> as, as human beings causing, you know, wreaking havoc and destruction on the planet and, you know, selfishly, you know, claiming everything for ourselves without any care or concern for anybody else or the rest of the world and the natural world and all of that. And this was back in the uh, early to mid 70s. And would you say this was something that you had created as a perspective by yourself or anything you might have picked up at home? Oh, I definitely picked up stuff from home, but I also picked up some of this from my year in Spain, living in, in southern Spain, a very poor culture where they had a completely different relationship with the world and a very different way of relating to each other and to us than I mean, it was by far and away the happiest year of my childhood because the environment was so completely different. The people were so completely different. I mean, they were like real human beings, like three-dimensional human beings compared to most of the people in this country who are like two-dimensional at best, it seemed. Or at <laughs> least or at least two-faced and fork-tongued and completely oblivious to their humanity. And our shared humanity is what I what what it seemed like to me, because like when I was in school, kids were nasty and mean. And and even mm. even the kids who were who were generally nice kids, they had mean streaks in them that would come out at times that was that could be vicious. And for me as a child growing up in a broken home where I had a crazy mother who just lashed out at me and railed against me on a regular basis, I just didn't have the resilience to take that. So I did not do well in our culture. And that year in Southern Spain, the kids there were not that way at all. They were warm hearted, they were kind. They were also very irreverent, full of humor and mischief. And it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. I was the only one who had, you know, any kind of a mean streak or dark streak that would come out Fortunately, only on very rare occasions because of what I grew up in with this culture. And that's so interesting, Tonio. For instance, when you were in Spain during that time, did you already know the language or did you pick it up quickly? Because a lot of times being an outsider can be a real disadvantage in terms of, you know, in, in that kind of atmosphere. Well, the way my father described it is that I was enrolled in the local Catholic school and he said that. For the first two weeks, I came back every day with a headache saying I, I didn't get it. And then after two weeks, one day I came home and I said, I got it. And from that point on, I was like pretty much completely fluent. And I certainly became completely fluent very quickly. Wow. In two weeks, I'm, I'm impressed. That's really good. But I was a child and children pick up languages very quickly, particularly when they're immersed in it. And that's... Yeah. That was the case with me. So I don't think I was particularly special in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how interesting that you noticed that the European, at least the Spanish sensibility, didn't have that meanness that, you know, I don't know, is America the country of bullies? I'm sure there are bullies everywhere. We seem to have kind of perfected it to the point that we've actually elected presidents who are bullies. <laughs> like, wow, what a country. Yeah, what a, what a country. So, so I, I just want to quickly say that my guest is Rick Halterman. And he is, well, as 
as well as being a longstanding partner in crime here on the airwaves with me, is a noetic balancing practitioner and author of Curriculum of the Soul and Luminescence of the Ordinary. So with that said, I was wondering if you might have a poem that you've thought of that might be good to open up the floodgates of this offbeat, irreverent holiday show. <laughs> well, let's start this because we had already talked about this via email and there's a story connected to it in your family that I want to hear that story. But this is something on Thanksgiving when I did my radio show, I was doing a show all about family. And this is Dorianne Locks's poem called Family Stories. I had a boyfriend who told me stories about his family, how an argument once ended when his father seized a lit birthday cake in both hands and hurled it out a second story window. That, I thought, was what a normal family was like. Anger sent out across the sill, landing like a gift to decorate the sidewalk below. In mine, it was fists and direct hits to the solar plexus and no one ever forgave anyone. But I believe the people in his stories really loved each other, even when they yelled and shoved their feet through cabinet doors or held a chair like a bottle of cheap champagne, christening the wall, rungs exploding from their holes. I said it sounded harmless, the pomp and fury of the passionate. He said it was a curse being born Italian and Catholic. And when he looked from that window, what he saw was the moment rudely crushed but all I could see was a gorgeous three-layer cake gliding like a battered ship down the sidewalk, the smoking candles broken, sunk deep in the icing, a few still burning. I love that poem so much. And in that email, in response to you, I told you about my story of my mother back when I was a child, before I went to Spain, like around the age of five, six, and seven. I used to watch Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. And my grandmother had given me a, a small black and white TV set, I think. And my mother hated having a TV in the house. But one Saturday morning, she was particularly incensed and unhinged. And she stormed into my room while I was watching it. And she grabbed the TV. She didn't even bother unplugging it. She grabbed the TV <laughs> and took it out and opened up a window and tried to throw it out a three-story window, <laughs> but it didn't fit. <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's just go back and, you know, just chronologically here. What precipitated her anger that morning? I have absolutely no idea because I was a child and I, I don't have any memory. I suspect she just asked me to do something or she, maybe she asked me to turn the volume down or something. Because yeah. one thing I do remember is that when I would get really frustrated with her, which happened a lot, is I would storm into my room, slam the door, jump on my bed, kick off the wall, and then fly back and do a drop kick into my door. 
<laughs> Tony, I want footage. <laughs> <laughs> and so after who knows how long I was doing that, she took the door off the hinge. So there was no door there. So I, <laughs> this is getting better. <laughs> I suspect that she was really annoyed because it was a small New York City apartment that she was probably really annoyed at having to hear the TV going from the other room. She was probably reading or something and, and yeah. just got really pissed off and said, turn that down. And I being, you know, who I was at the time, I probably didn't. You know, I probably ignored her. And that's probably the genesis of that. Oh, this is such a great story. But so to finish out your story, when she realized that she couldn't get the TV through the window, what was her exasperation? Did she even get to a point of the absurdity of it all? Or what happened? Oh, it just incensed her even more. She was just, <laughs> she was just totally beside herself with frustration. She might even have just smashed it on on the floor. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> wow. But I do remember that we did not have a TV there most of the time. So that might have been the end of the TV one way or another. And she had a way of eliminating things while I wasn't there because I would come to visit on the weekend. And then and things would be gone when you came back to the visit. Yeah. The, For example, yeah, my mother would do the same thing in the laundry that they're like, I love these old, old shirts that got well worn and were really comfortable and sometimes might have a hole or two in them. And there would be like one week going, where did it go? And it would take me a little while by the time that I could even ask her. It was long gone. Well, she did it with our cat. Really? After promising me that she wouldn't. Yeah. Oh, oh. Because she threatened to get rid of them because um, we had this cat. And I just recently learned that it was actually my father's cat. And his second wife was allergic to cats. So I think the cat ended up moving in with me and my mother, who I only spent weekends with. And our cat had kittens and after that my mother announced that she was allergic to cats i don't know if it was true or not and she said she was going to get rid of them and i i had a complete meltdown fit over that wow and the next weekend i came the kittens were all gone so i, I was very upset about that but then oh she said she was going to get rid of the cat next you know i had a fit and to appease me she promised that she wouldn't, but then the following weekend, the cat was gone as well. Tonio, this is like some pretty fertile psychological terrain, you know. Yeah, I should be lying down on the couch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so, Dr. Halterman. <laughs> Actually, here, we can take a leap, unless you, and I sent this one to you, but if you want to read it, and, and feel free if you do want to read it. This is the Anselm Hollow poem called The Discovery of LSD, A True Story. Would you like to read that? Oh, I love that one. I was even considering that as a possible opening. Yeah, one. so that's why this would be a good leap. And I would love to hear you read it, actually. Okay, well, hopefully I won't butcher it. Just, so have, just do that German thing at the very end for the last line. That's all that matters. Okay. So this is titled The Discovery of LSD, A True Story. The dose of a mere 50 micrograms totally altered the consciousness of Professor Albert Hoffman. Motel Soda Works intersection swerve hit geode Albert 
inadvertently inhaled it, blast core city, ominous rock, spiraling rates of life, inhaled his consciousness and exhaled, phew, wow, how, zap, boss, sumskink. That's great. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. It reminds me of Kenneth Patchen. Do you know him? Yes, you have mentioned him before. I used to have a little book of his poetry that was, you know, full of kind of non sequiturial um, poetry, sort of like this. But uh, his stuff was so offbeat that I used to use this as part of my radio training. When somebody was training with me, I would actually, you know, on the spot while they were training, you know, on the microphone, I would open up the book at random and have them read a poem on the air. And because it was such a non-sequitorial type of poetry, it would confuse them. It would make them focus on reading the poetry so they would completely forget about their nervousness of talking on the air. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, in the same vein, you know, I, I had to pick out something by Charles Bukowski, who was, you know, sort of like the epitome of the irreverent poets. And here's one I found. And the name of the poem is called Batting Order. And I really love this poem because it has a lot of great literary references. So here it is. Hemingway's been in a slump. Can't hit a curveball anymore. I'm dropping him to the sixth spot. I'm putting Celine in cleanup. He's inconsistent, but when he's good, there's no better. Hamson, I'm going to use in the number three spot. He hits him hard and often. Lead off, well, lead off, I'll use E.E. E. Cummings. He's fast, can beat out a bunt. I'll use pound in the number two spot. Ezra is one of the better hit and run men in the business. The five spot I'll give to Dostoevsky. He's a heavy hitter, great with men on base. The seventh spot I'll give to Robinson Jeffers. Can you think of anybody better? He can drill a rock 350 feet. The eighth spot, I've got my catcher, J.D. Salinger, if we can find him. And pitching, how about Nietzsche? He's strong, been breaking all the tables in the training room. Coaches, I'll take Kierkegaard and Sartre. Gloomy fellows, but none know this game better. When we field this team, it's all over, gentlemen. We're going to kick some ass, most likely yours. <laughs> Isn't that just great? You That's know, so great. That's so great. And it ends even greater. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was I, that little turn at the end. And, you know, the thing is, what I get pondering about this, like, terrain we're in right now is that a lot of poetry, but a lot of the arts, but also a lot of our culture takes itself so seriously. And it's such a relief when we get around to some kind of comedy or humor. I mean, I did the weirdest thing. I don't know why. But the one thing I wanted to do when my son was growing up, and he's my only child, I decided somewhere out of nowhere, said, I want to teach him the history of comedy. And so we started, and it was really going to be mostly cinematic going through that venue. And we started with Charlie Chaplin and went up through the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields. And then uh, there was Fireside Theater. 
and you know, getting in finally into Monty Python and then ending up places like Eddie Izzard. And now he shows me things that are really quite wonderful out there. He taught me about red versus blue and some of this more modern stuff. And I'm so happy I did this because he has really like a gourmet sense when it comes to comedy now. That sounds kind of like what my father did with me with movies. Like from an early age, he started taking me to serious movies you know my father was not a lightweight he he couldn't be bothered to watch you know anything less than a masterpiece basically so he would he would take me along to see ingmar bergman films and fellini films and things like that when i was a child and so that's part of how i grew up and if you were to give me like a top say three or five list of the films in your life that had this kind of influence on you, what might they be? Um, boy, that's hard because my memory is is not so good for, for things like that anymore, just because my brain has been so cluttered with so much stuff, like so many, <laughs> so many movies, so much music that I can no longer keep track of any of it. But the movies that come to mind most quickly, one of them is Walkabout. Oh, great film. Great, great film. Um, another one is You Can't Take It With You. Uh-huh. Do you know that one? Remind me of the plot, because I, I know the title, but I can't I can't visualize it right now in my head. It's George Cooker, and he's the same guy who did um, It's a Wonderful Life. And it has Jimmy Stewart, and, oh, yeah, it's got Lionel Barrymore, and he plays this eccentric old grandfather who has an incredible sense of humor and sense of irreverence. And he's very iconoclastic as well. And what he does is he he collects people off the street that he sees as being who don't belong in our normal society, who need like an environment where they can thrive, you know, as they truly are. And, you know, he, he's out in the world and he'll literally pick up people and bring them home. And he has this huge house and some of the people... There's one person downstairs in the basement who does all these scientific experiments and chemistry experiments. And there's one scene where there's a big explosion in the basement and there's smoke comes up from downstairs and this older gentleman smoking a pipe casually walks up the stairs. And I think Lionel Barrymore, you know, the, the old grandfather says something like, oh, sounds like you had a little mishap down there. And the other guy says something like, oh, you know, just another day in the lab. <laughs> no, I haven't seen it. And thank you for reminding me, because that period of filmmaking in America, like the Preston Sturgis films. Oh, I love those. Yeah. Were so, so, so was so good in those. And I still go back to them because I don't think we have films that really are on the same level when it comes to that kind of smart comedy. And also that kind of clear-sightedness of our culture. Yes. We don't yes. do that. We don't do that anymore. Or And when we do it, we do it in a kind of overwrought way. Whereas I think back then they were much more level-headed about how our culture was completely off the rails. Well, and, you know, I think we've done a little bit of this before, but we have had some poets that can get into this terrain. And the one I'm, I'm referring to right now is Tony Hoagland. 
Mm-hmm. And he does this all the time. And I'll give you one of his right now. It's called Moment in the Conversation. At the party, sometimes there's a moment in the conversation when the woman you are talking to casually makes some mention of her husband. And you know, you have probably been leaning in to an uncomfortable degree. And then he has in italics, please adjust your body language to speak Amish. It isn't like she's suggesting that her husband is on his way over here right now after teaching his class at the karate studio, or that he will be back at any moment from walking the pit bull to his court-ordered session at the Anger Management Center. It's more like being tastefully detained at the entrance of a restaurant you really can't afford. It is like being gently guided by a security guard in a motorized golf cart out of a neighborhood where you were just strolling and looking around. Life used to be a whole subdivision of crazy possibilities, but now it's just a few quiet rooms on the second floor in the economy motel near the edge of town. Sometimes one of those former impulses of yours calls you from the phone in the lobby and wants you to come out and run around and you have to speak to it in the way that that married woman speaks to you slowly and firmly and with a kind of charity, pronouncing the simple words in such a way that even an idiot can understand. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) That is so wonderful. So, you know, I love it. And actually, Tony Hoagland is this interesting sort of anomaly. You know, Billy, Billy Collins is kind of in the terrain. He's not quite as severe as Tony Hoagland, but to bring this much kind of humor into a poem. In fact, let me see. Oh, I know. There was one that I read this past week. So this one's called Cry Me a River. And it, I just love, love, love this. Once upon a time, there were five brothers. One could hear an acorn drop a hundred miles away. The second could understand the speech of animals. Another could make his legs grow very long. The fourth had read every book ever written and could remember every word. The last could weep to flood the world. Let us say they were Chinese. And the fourth one ran through the library of his mind and said, quote, the sublateral equation of 100 kilotons of hydrophobia in the second week of April equals precisely 4,000 loaves of bread and 15 cups of sugar, end quote. And that was the right answer. The king scientists were dazzled and then, of course, grew jealous. I can almost remember the day my heart stopped feeling anything. I stood up from my body at the dinner table and walked away from that strange silence like a man who leaves his deserted smoking village to wander through the world forevermore. But the brothers kept getting into trouble. And the first brother eavesdropped on the conversation of two mice who lived beneath the palace floor. And he repeated what he heard to brother number three, who could translate mouse dialect. And he said, quote, The king's feet are hurting him tonight, and he is going to march into Fredonia tomorrow and burn the countryside, end quote. Why are they brothers and not sisters? All this happened long ago, so we can't ask. Of childhood, I have just the faintest recollection. It's like the black and white footage of a distant place on a television with the sound turned off. And the Swift brother ran like the west wind on amphetamines and fetched a bucket of snow from the mountaintop and brought it to the king who put his feet in. 
and the countryside was peaceful for a while. Has anyone had a normal life that we could use as reference? Trying to imagine that is like trying to imagine what it would be like to be smarter than you are. Then something else happened. The queen was kidnapped by a band of traveling alcoholics and the king sent for the five brothers to bring their skills post haste. And the fifth brother, whose job it was to have feelings for the rest of them said, quote, I have four brothers, but I am lonely, end quote. And the smart brother said, quote, my calculations show that the king will never be satisfied, end quote. And the second brother and the third said that they were tired of being exceptional. None of them had slept in years. And the first brother, who had been listening closely, said, quote, I can hear the future coming toward us, and I think that where we come from doesn't matter anymore, end quote. And the ugly brother said, he was ugly as well as emotional, quote, I will teach you how to cry, end quote. And his tears fell down in such profusion, they formed a river of considerable size. And all the boys fell in, got wet, and felt much better afterward. They named the river Evangeline in honor of the queen who was never saved, whom they praised whenever they went fishing, which was all the time. And that was the world's first country Western song. Wow. <laughs> Don't you love all the turns in that one? And actually when I read it on my show, I ended up playing a jazz version of Cry Me a River. That made me think of fairy tales. Yeah, exactly. Like somebody taking a whole bunch of fairy tales and throwing them all, to, smashing them all together and then landing on a piece of paper in a way. Yeah. And here's one, because, you know, there's so many of your wonderful shows, Tonio, that have such a strong spiritual bent. And this is another long one that I had done last week. And this was written by Rick Fields. And the name of the poem is The Very Short Sutra on the Meeting of the Buddha and the goddess. Thus I have made up. Once the Buddha was walking along the forest path in the oak grove at Ojai, walking without arriving anywhere or having any thought of arriving or not arriving. And lotuses shining with the morning dew miraculously appeared under every step, soft as silk beneath the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly, out of the turquoise sky, dancing in front of his half-shut, inward-looking eyes, shimmering like a rainbow or a spider's web, transparent as the dew on a lotus flower, the goddess appeared quivering like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for she surely was a she, as the Buddha could clearly see, with his eye of discriminating awareness, was mostly red in color, though when the light shifted, she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked except for the usual flower ornaments goddesses wear. Her long blue hair was deep blue, her two eyes fathomless pits of space, and her third eye a bloodshot ring of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus, quote, Oh, goddess, why are you blocking my path? Before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere. Now I'm not sure where to go. You can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heels like a bird darting away, but just a little way away. Or you can come after me. This is my forest too. You can't pretend I'm not here. 
With that, the Buddha sat supple as a snake, solid as a rock beneath a bow tree that sprang full leave to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said. After years of arduous practice at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality and now, not so fast, Buddha, I am reality. The earth stood still, the oceans paused, the wind listened, a thousand arhats, bodhisattvas and dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in the conversation. I know I take my life in my hands, said the Buddha, but I'm known as the fearless one, so here goes. And he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances, light rays like sunbeams shot forth, so bright that even Saraputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. And then they exchanged mind, and there was a great silence as vast as the universe that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies and clothes, and the Buddha arose as the goddess, and the goddess arose as the Buddha, and so on back and forth for a hundred thousand kalpas. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. If you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, this. The Buddha is the goddess. The goddess is the Buddha. And not only that, this. The Buddha is emptiness. The goddess is bliss. And that is what and what not you are. It's true. So here comes the mantra of the goddess and the Buddha, the unsurpassed non-dual mantra. Just to say this mantra, just to hear this mantra once, just to hear one word of this mantra once makes everything the way it truly is. Okay. What'd you think? That was so wonderful. <laughs> Great. I love that. I mean, it, it scores on so many levels. <laughs> you know, it's really lovely too, because Here's a great example of someone who clearly is well-versed in, you know, spiritual terrain, and he's having such fun with it. In fact, I was remembering there's a Jack Gilbert poem, which is called A Brief for the Defense, and in it, he says in that poem, in fact, let me see if I can find it, but there's just a line in it, and the line has to do with that we can live without joy, but we can't live without delight. In the meantime, do you have a particular poem that you're thinking of? Well, I just pulled up a couple. One is titled The Theories of Everything by Rebecca Elson. I'm not familiar, so I'd love to hear it. This is Theories of Everything, when the lecturer's shirt matches the painting on the wall. <laughs> great. Isn't that great? Yeah, I love how it begins. <laughs> and that's not even the poem. That's just the title. <laughs> <laughs> we could end it there and be thoroughly satisfied. <laughs> totally. <laughs> okay. Theories of Everything, When the Lecturer's Shirt Matches the Painting on the Wall by Rebecca Elson. He stands there speaking without love of theories where in the democracy of this universe or that, there could be legislators who ordain trajectories for falling bodies, where all things must be dreamed with indifference, and purpose is a momentary silhouette backlit by a blue anthropic flash, a storm on the horizon, 
but even the painting on the wall behind itself an accident of shattered symmetries is only half eclipsed by his transparencies of hierarchy and order and the history of thought. And what he cannot see is this, himself projected next to his projections where the colors from the painting have spilled onto his shirt, their motion stilled into a rigorous design of lines and light. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. And, you know, I love this because this, this takes place at readings. I'll just do it. If I can insert a quick one here. This is John Brem's poem called At the Poetry Reading, which is kind of the tangent from what you just read. I can't keep my eyes off the poet's wife's legs. They're so much more beautiful than anything he might be saying, though I'm no longer in a position really to judge, having stopped listening some time ago. He's from the Iowa Writers Workshop and can therefore get along fine without my attention. He started in reading poems about his childhood, barns, corn snakes, grade school, flowers, that sort of stuff. The loss of innocence he keeps talking about between poems, which I can relate to, especially under these circumstances. Now he's on to science, a poem about hydrogen, I think. He's trying to imagine himself turning into hydrogen. Maybe he'll succeed. I'm imagining myself sliding up his wife's fluid, rhythmic, lusciously curved, black, stockinged legs, imagining them arched around my shoulders, wrapped around my back. By God, why doesn't he write poems about her? He will, no doubt, once she leaves him. Leaves him for another poet, perhaps, the observant, uninnocent one who knows a poem when it sits down in a room with him. Miles be having fun with this, right? Yep. <laughs> yep. I found another one that's titled What Love Cannot Do by January Gill O'Neill. Okay. Yeah, I like her a lot. She's very good. It cannot save itself when it expires like a tire's slow leak. It cannot bring back the greediness of youth, mouth on mouth, skin on skin, that gnawing, that longing you carried until the next time. And then there is no next time. You never see it coming, but always see it leaving. It waits by the door, bags packed, full of stones from your life. What it can do is mark the distance between point A and point B, which feels like a galaxy. Every star you've ever wished upon imploding before your eyes. <laughs> That's great, Donio. Thank you so much for that. So yeah, that little quote, I was here, the actual words from that Jack Gilbert poem says, we must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight. So, you know, with that January O'Gill poem, uh, she's just wonderful. And that's exactly this, the, you know, I loved how she says, we, we never see it coming, but we always see it leaving. That is so perfect for our relationships. Mm-hmm. Yep. Getting Back to the Present. Yes. By Billy Collins. Yeah, yeah. This might be a first in our history, me reading two poems in a row. I love it. <laughs> Much has been said about being in the present. It's the place to be, according to the gurus, like the latest club on the downtown scene but no one, it seems, is able to give you directions. 
it doesn't seem desirable or even possible to wake up every morning and begin leaping from one second into the next until you fall exhausted back into bed. Plus, there'd be no past with so many scenes to savor and regret, and no future, the place you will die, but not before flying around with a jetpack. The trouble with the present is that it's always in a state of vanishing. Take the second it takes to end this sentence with a period. Already gone. What about the moment that exists between banging your thumb with a hammer and realizing you're in a whole lot of pain? <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> what about the one that occurs after you hear the punchline, but before you get the joke? It's that where the wise man wants us to live in that intervening tick, the tiny slot that occurs after you have spent hours searching downtown for that new club and just before you give up and head back home. Wow. Wow. You know, he is so great at, you know, I think Billy Collins, and, and this may be, at least for me, one of his great attributes is how he'll explore the utter ordinary without having to get erudite or anything, you know, like into big philosophical things. He's fantastic at that. In fact, I'll do a short Billy Collins, which is called Hippos on Holiday. And here it's such a short one. So Hippos on Holiday is not really the title of a movie, but if it was, I would be sure to see it. I love their short legs and big heads, the whole hippo look. Hundreds of them would frolic in the mud of a wide, slow-moving river, and I would eat my popcorn in the dark of a neighborhood theater. When they opened their enormous mouths lined with big stubby teeth, I would drink my enormous Coke. I would be both in my seat and in the water playing with the hippos, which is the way it is with a truly great movie. Only a mean-spirited reviewer would ask, on holiday from what? So there's Billy. And, you know, I think it was when I first had moved out here to New Mexico, he was the then poet laureate of the U.S. and he gave a reading. And he has a very dry delivery when he's reading his poetry. And he's good. He's really very good because I think a lot of people love to listen or read him because he's so entertaining. And that's not always the case. And I've, I'm hoping that the stuff that we're reading today for the listener to the show will find a certain amount of entertainment like here's a Tony Hoagland poem, which is not so much about the present, but he's really talking about a potential future. And this is a total thing that if you were living here in Taos, you would get, but I think you'll still understand a lot of it, even there all the way in Vermont. The name of the poem is called, If I Stay in Santa Fe. If I stay in Santa Fe, I think I will end up with a red string knotted to my wrist, tied there by a Tibetan Rinpoche, as a means of proving that I am holy. If I stay, I know I shall require a profession, becoming an apprentice in succession for jobs as a woodworker, a shiatsu masseuse, a permaculture expert, a hospice volunteer, and a better dream facilitator. If I stay in Santa Fe, the chances are good that I will finally take the tango lessons my first two wives wanted me to take, and I will look freaking fantastic on the dance floor my body tilted like a French accent, my forearm displaying the tattoo I got soon after I met wife number three to cover up the tattoo I got 
with wife number two. If I stay in Santa Fe, I will have to be on guard, knowing that I am susceptible to the rhetoric of transformation in the way that certain other people are susceptible to summer colds or lung infections. And if I stay in Santa Fe, I know I might be tempted to change my name to Diego or Joaquin to qualify for the arts grant from the Heritage Council. But on the other hand, why not? But if I stay in Santa Fe, I wonder if I will become shallow or predatory. Will I haunt the gallery openings on Canyon Road in a black silk shirt and gold earring, filling my mouth with white wine and canapes while chatting up divorcees and trying to read the aura of their stock portfolios? Will I glance in the mirror one night in my apartment and burst into tears because I look like an ad for a tequila company with my little goatee and skinny ponytail and my line about living for bliss, which was the embarrassing hypothesis of a younger man who did not know himself in the way I hope I will know myself someday if I stay in Santa Fe. So that sums up the whole deal of living here in the Southwest right there, Tony. Because <laughs> there is kind of like a whole trope about people that will come here and get into this whole like transformation thing, including changing their name, changing their image. I mean, there's a friend I have here in town and she and her daughter, they're originally, I think, from Ohio. And while living here, and they're still here, they would take down, write down all the different names people would rename themselves. And in Taos in particular, there's names like Beaver, Raven. Of course, there's Aspen and Willow. And I mean, just this whole myriad of names, which goes crazy. In fact, if you have that Tony Hoagland poem, I'd love to hear you read it. It's something about questions for the new age. Do you have that in front of you by any chance? You mean 10 questions for the new yes, age? exactly. I actually have it open here because you're reading that last one reminded me of it. Yes. So I'd love to hear you read it. <laughs> okay. This is right up our alley, Tony. <laughs> now this one's a little bit long, so I'm going to have to scroll through it at the same time I read it, which will be a challenge like a uh, Gerald Ford chewing gum and farting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> So this is 10 Questions for the New Age by Tony Hoagland. Why does someone who takes the name Buffalo Vision, for example, after his weekend ayahuasca workshop, always seem to have an unwarranted confidence that he's going to end up at the happy hunting ground? <laughs> if Seymour Eagle Mountain marries Western River Woman, fine. But do they have to name their daughter Blueberry or Lake? Then they send her to suffer at a Waldorf school where she majors in birch bark and folk dance. And years later, has to hire a life coach to help her fill out college applications as she painstakingly writes an autobiographical essay on the theme of how certain so-called sentient beings can inflict their embarrassing illusions upon another. <laughs> Do you get what I'm talking about? About the hazards of playing at innocence? Walt Disney made some good movies, but would you really get five sayings from the Lion King tattooed on your forearm for practical reference as you ship out to Iraq? <laughs> Which brings me 
to my actual subject, a man I call Connor, whom I met at a rest stop right after his second vision quest, who wore a feather in his hat, was 55, well-fed, and lived with his mom in Carson City, who plays his guitar at open mics and plans on a serious musical career as soon as he gets more experience. Connor, who prefers to be called by his true name, Iron Bear. Whenever I encounter the New Age still in its original diapers, I confess that I blush down to my deepest roots, that I too am its scornful, not entirely grown-up child. When I was 20, I learned to play Blowing in the Wind on a wooden flute. I made bracelets out of hemp and polished quartz and gave them away. I had a girlfriend who freely expressed her opinion that people born in Bangladesh had probably incarnated there to work out their issues with poverty. Why does the New Age seem so often like a patient in intensive care, in a delicate condition requiring giant transfusions of illusion and charity to stay alive, while the rest of us keep waiting for the day it might get tough enough to be successfully transplanted in the real world? Getting back to Connor, still living with his mom on an allowance in Carson City, nothing can stop him from going to the open mic every Thursday night and singing his heart out, or from signing his letters blessings from Iron Bear, poet and seer, a.k.a. Connor. Pretend for a moment that you are a philanthropist whom I'm asking for a donation to a charitable program to rehabilitate wandering middle-aged children like the ones I'm describing. What funds can you offer? What advice might you have for me? What chance do you think there is for Connor to ever grow up, much less find a happy ending? On the other hand, it isn't some kind of ultimate foolishness to scold cheerful people who in their way are the pilgrims of our time about the folly of their happiness. I ask you, what kind of folly is that? <laughs> Isn't that sweet how he turns it around at the end? That instead of the scorn of the new age, these people have found their own way to happiness. And what folly is there in that? Yep. So, you know, it is really an interesting thing. You know, it's just like you have this art of conversation down, you know, because you've now been doing Magical Mystery Tour for so long. And, you know, it's interesting because there are some people you have where like there was that the therapist who was in her 70s who does the path work uh, stuff. And it was the conversation was about trauma that you had done recently. It was a real conversation and you jumped right in on it and you guys had a great time. There's all this energy. And then there are other people and, and you're so used to this too. And you're very gracious that they really want to come and in essence, kind of give sort of the, you know, the PowerPoint version of their book and as concise a way in the limited time that they have. And you just simply ask a few questions and they'll just go on and on and on. So you've learned the whole rhythm of that, which is really cool. Poetry is an interesting thing because you know, at least when I was going to school, they weren't teaching modern poetry because we're now out of the terrain of rhymes and that kind of thing. And we're into this whole other deal where it really can be very improvisational and very spontaneous and really getting into that rhythm of whatever it is. Like here's a poem from, and I think I sent this to you, 
Taylor Mali, he's a teacher and educator, and he loves to perform these things, and he memorizes his poems. Anyhow, this is a fun little poem called Like Lily, Like Wilson. I'm writing the poem that will change the world, and it's Lily Wilson at my office door. Lily Wilson, the recovering like addict, the worst I've ever seen. So like bad, the whole eighth grade started calling her like Lily, like Wilson, like. Until I declared my classroom a like-free zone, and she could not speak for days. But when she finally did, it was to say, Mr. Molly, this is so hard. Now I have to think before I say anything. Imagine that, Lily. It's for your own good, even if you don't like it. I'm writing the poem that will change the world, and it's Lily Wilson at my office door. Lily is writing a research paper for me about how homosexuals shouldn't be allowed to adopt children. I'm writing the poem that will change the world, and it's like Lily, like Wilson at my office door. She's having trouble finding sources, which is to say, ones that back her up. They all argue in favor of what I thought I was against. And it took four years of college, three years of graduate school, and every incidental teaching experience I have ever had to let out only, well, that's a real interesting problem, Lily. What do you propose to do about it? That's what I want to know. And the eighth grade mind is a beautiful thing. It's a newborn baby's face. You can often see it change before your very eyes. I can't believe I'm saying this, Mr. Mali, but I think I'd like to switch sides. And I want to tell her to do more than just believe it, but to enjoy it. That changing your mind is one of the best ways of finding out whether or not you still have one. Or even that minds are like parachutes, that it doesn't matter what you pack them with so long as they open at the right time. Oh, God, Lily, I want to say you make me feel like a teacher. And who could ask to feel more than that? I want to say all this but manage only, Lily, I am like so impressed with you. <laughs> So I finally taught somebody something, namely how to change her mind. And I learned in the process that if I ever change the world, it's going to be one eighth grader at a time. I have a great appreciation for Taylor Molly. He's got a great voice, too, for that. I saw Taylor Molly. They used to have in Taos a poetry circus and would get poets from all around the country to show up and they would all do readings. And I saw him and there he was dressed in, you know, a suit and doing these totally irreverent poems. And he was so animated. I've never seen a poet as animated as he and, and anyone can check him on YouTube. He's a performer and he really turns the whole thing. It isn't a reading. It is a performance. It's WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. And the people who do these, you know, poetry slam performances or who just get up on stage to read their poetry, they're really good performers. I mean, they, they've really honed their craft, which is more yeah. than just writing poetry, but actually reading it as well. Yes, because it has become, and I think that they've realized, thanks to slam poetry events, that it is the performance aspect that really is kind of the delivery mechanism for selling that poem 
Because if you read it, you know, not very well, you're not probably going to be asked back to perform. Not to mention that the audience will dread the idea of having to listen to you. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we've all heard people who are just not good readers read, and it takes all the fun out of the experience. And, you know, there is the other side of it, too. And I've seen people that are really great at doing the kind of performing thing, yet their poetry doesn't really have the substance that matches the level of their performance. It's an interesting time, Tonya, like at, at this Thanksgiving event that I went to, which was with about a dozen other people. The host was reading poetry from actually was a neighbor. And as I was listening, because I've actually heard that neighbor, this was a, a, an event even just a month before, and he was reciting this stuff while he was playing a djembe. He was horrible on the djembe, and I was already cringing, you know, between my African dance background. And anyhow, he was reading this poem on Thanksgiving, and there was no metaphor, there's no nothing. And it was like presented to sound like poetry, but in fact, underneath it, it wasn't poetry. It was basically trying to tell us how to feel. And I find that kind of writing, let me just say, irritating. <laughs> and, and we live in this interesting time that particularly like when it comes to reading poetry, there aren't those ready examples that you can just turn to and say, here's like in cinema, you can say, here's a great film like Citizen Kane or The Seventh Seal or something like that. We don't have that first just in terms of reading, you know, who reads, like who's the great poetry reader out there. And there are a lot of people today who really don't know the difference between So what actually is a poem and what is like this particular person I was referring to, you know, who lives around here in Taos, it's really basically journal writing he's putting in kind of a poetry style, but it has nothing to do with poetry. Yep. Essentially a faker. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for calling it out. (laughs) Or a pretender. Exactly. And here in kind of that vein, I'm going to go back to Anselm Hollow. And actually, this, this is tied in in some way. There was Charles Olson's poem that's at the beginning of Curriculum of the Soul. And there was a whole chapbook series of all these little, there's like 28 different sections. And the 27th section is called Sensation. And this is where I got that poem about the discovery of LSD from Anselm Hollow. And here's another one, which doesn't have a title, but here's a poem, and there's something that can go with this. But first, let's see what you think. Long hours when labor is at the desk to come up with these funny little chunks, like Sansom agonistes, all for the birds or anthologists. One has a staggering cold today, but one can read unlike the unfortunate 18.5 million Americans who can't. The Tibetan mysticism of John Tantric Blofeld, wishes, lives, and dreams, American Indian lives, staggering lives. The world loves the world anthology, but no one even likes British poetry since 1945, which is just a room full of music boxes confidently playing Lara's theme. But one does like one poem in it, Peter Pewter's haiku, Alone in the Cosmos. It's so brief, one quotes, and here's the haiku. I kneel by the infinite sands of the stars. My hat blows off the planet. Dinner is in doubt. (laughs) It's wonderful. (laughs) I love that. That is a great haiku. 
<laughs> Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> and so right next to this, and this is this is a poem that comes from William Matthews. And he's really more of a conventional poet, but the name of the poem is called Dancing to Reggae Music. And it has a very interesting kind of end that's very similar to what we just heard. So here's the poem. That night with its close breath of sawdust and overproof rum, its clatter of waxy leaves above the scuff of earth we print and erase. The night pours over us its star-spotted syrup of wakefulness. I love the halt and stutter both, and the lyrics with their exultant certainties about politics and religion. I want to disturb my neighbor because I'm feeling so right. Somebody's lit a spleef, I can tell, by the dense caramel of ganja smoke. There are trances of paying attention and trances of giving it up, which is where the blue-gray ganja smoke will go slowly. It's so thick and layered, and where the scent of dancing will go, a little acrid the way an armpit is after orgasms, as if acrid meant truculent, to come back to our common life after the trances of the self we use each other for. How easy it is to dance about the self and easy to confuse it with a consulate body. If they were the same, we couldn't move, much less dance the night away that's leaving us anyhow. It too will go up, pushed back by the salt light of dawn coming from the ocean, and up is where we go from there after a detour through dust. So long politics and religion. Hello, stars. Isn't that sweet? Mm -hmm. You know, I love it. It's like, well, we're just going to keep ascending, you know, at that very end, because that's what this is all about. You know, there was, I just rewatched, there's an old vampire film with Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston. It's on Jim Jarmusch film, which is called Only Lovers Left Alive. And there's a point, they're both vampires and Tom, who's Adam and Tilda is Eve. Adam is having this kind of moment of despair after hundreds of years of being on the planet. And he just says that we're completely populated. The whole planet is mostly zombies, is how he's describing most of us, that the blood pool is pretty polluted. And he's really, you know, just thinking about taking his own life finally. And, you know, Tilda playing Eve steps in and says, what about loving nature? What about the great literature? What about dancing? That there's this lovely positive twist of don't get lost in the despair. In fact, there was a recent Elizabeth Colbert article in The New Yorker, which she's really given a huge overview of the environmental situation and using the letters of the alphabet to do it. And under D, she said, you know, she talked about despair. And it was just actually one little sentence. It was like despair is something. And she goes, besides, it's a sin. <laughs> and I read that. I was like, wow, <laughs> we don't even get a chance to go there either. But I think that's kind of the point of a lot of the stuff that we've been reading today is it is so easy to go to despair in where the world is at this moment. And there's a thousand reasons to do that. But on the other side, there's a thousand reasons to figure out a way to not go to despair, to enjoy the things that are available, and also maybe even contribute to whatever is happening in the world in a positive way as far as sharing your particular gifts with the world. What do you think? Yeah, that's something that we all get to wrestle with from moment to moment as our, as our perspectives and our moods and our 
responses to what's to, you know to circumstances continually shifts you know yeah. kind of kind of back and forth yeah so here's another tony hoagland it's called i have news for you there are people who do not see a broken playground swing as a symbol of ruined childhood and there are people who don't interpret the behavior of a fly in a motel room as a mocking representation of their thought process there are people who don't walk past an empty swimming pool and think about past pleasures unrecoverable and then stand there blocking the sidewalk for other pedestrians. I have read about a town somewhere in California where human beings do not send their sinuous feeder roots deep into the potting soil of others' emotional lives as if they were greedy six-year-olds sucking the last half inch of milkshake up through a noisy straw. And other persons in the Midwest who can kiss without debating the imperialist baggage of heterosexuality. Do you see that creamy lemon yellow moon? There are some people, unlike me and you, who do not yearn after fame or love or quantities of money as unattainable as that moon. Thus, they do not later have to waste more time defaming the object of their former ardor or consequently run and crucify themselves in some solitary midnight Starbucks Golgotha. I have news for you. There are people who get up in the morning and cross a room and open a window to let the sweet breeze in and let it touch them all over their faces and bodies. I love that one too. Isn't that sweet? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's, you know, that lovely reminder. I mean, for me, the resource of poetry, Tonyo, I can't tell you. You know, I, I came to this very interesting moment, I don't know how many weeks ago, and actually there was quite a level of grief, because I really got to see in the most clear and blunt terms the absolute bare naked dysfunctionality of my own family, you know, that I grew up with. And it was harsh. You know, I was I knew a lot of the pieces, but to really see it without any kind of coding or any kind of, you know, some kind of trying to change it to make it better. And it was an amazing little experience to be able to do that and then realize, well, but I can't get stuck there. You know, what's the point of doing that? Because that's not particularly loving. And then realize that when it came to my own particular childhood, because not much was happening at home in terms of instruction, except maybe through the back door or something like that. I was either in nature or then the first thing was music, but then it became film and the arts that, and now poetry in particular, I have probably learned more from poetry than I have from, well, in other arts as well, than anything I ever learned in my birth family growing up in terms of wisdom and ways to sense and feel into the world and how to be in the world. And the reason why I brought this up, Jocelyn, my partner was showing me an article in the sun recently, and it was about a guy's reflection. I think he was, he grew up around New York City, all the things that his father had taught him. Did you have that kind of experience? Or was it through the craziness that you learned like, oh, I just don't want to be that way because of the craziness? I think I mostly learned the latter way. You know, life taught me what I didn't want to learn. Although I did actually learn a lot from my father. I think sort of through osmosis because he didn't lecture me he didn't tell me 
how I should do things. He actually left me to my own devices to learn on my own. And he did that very deliberately. So I think I really picked that up from him in that way that isn't rammed down our throat, yeah. you know, in the traditional way of teaching and learning. You know, it's sort of the Zen approach to learning. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really quite beautiful, you know, through observation. And I think that we really do notice as kids and we have, there's a certain kind of gravitational thing that happens that we notice the people who are happy and we notice the people who aren't happy. And of course, our young selves, the gravity tends to go towards where the playful happiness is. Yeah, but the approach that, that I experienced takes a long time to bear fruit. And it takes a tremendous amount of patience for someone to actually use that approach to teaching and allowing another person the space to learn on their own. And that's not something that is widely accepted, encouraged, or even desired in this culture where we try to change people right now. It's like, if we don't get people to learn their lesson or what we want them to learn right now, we're just frustrated and annoyed with them. And, and, <laughs> and we basically dismiss them or we punish them. And we live in a kind of a wasteland in terms of wisdom and patience and sanity. Yeah, it's definitely, there's that whole fix it thing. You know, this comes up all the time in my own life. You know, when people start getting into whatever, and I'll say, you know, like a relationship, for instance, between two people, whether they're in partnership or not, there's an evolution. And, you know, of course, we can set boundaries and do things like that. But fixing isn't really, you know, it's not it's not the same approach, say, I would do with fixing something in my old cars. You know, I'm just going to replace the part, that kind of thing. That isn't really how humans work. And yet we keep trying. And I think, and I even see it in Western medicine. How fast can we fix this? How quickly can I give you a pill? How quickly can I do whatever so that you don't have to go through this as if there was no information there for your body to learn from? And also being content with fixing the most superficial level of the symptom and not having yeah. any curiosity or interest in pursuing anything deeper as if there was no such thing as, as there being something deeper. Exactly. It's just so fascinating to me because I was in a conversation with my son a couple nights ago. He told me that he's been experiencing acid reflux and, and I was just, you know, getting into the details of it. It was interesting because this is my younger brother whose birthday is today. His wife just had an operation for acid reflux and the whole thing's gone awry and she had a blood clot in her lung. And the first question just came to my mind was, well, <laughs> like, wait a minute, my son is going using meds and having some success there. She's having a big old mess going on in her life. And I'm like, how come nobody's talking about just diet first or seeing what's out of balance in your life to figure that out before you would go to these other measures, you know, the quick fix it thing to see. So it, you know, it's almost like we've given up the faith in our bodies to A, a have this great intelligence to tell us that something's awry and B, that the body is capable of actually repairing itself short of crazy trauma if we're willing to lend a hand. 
Yeah, it's the curse of our cultural materialist perspective. We view ourselves, our bodies and our lives as if they were automobiles or machinery. And the metaphor of fuel, you know, you just pump gas into it. There's only one gas and we make the mistake of thinking, well, there's only food, period. And there's no such thing as diet. It's just food. You fill the tank with food and, and that's it. You don't even think twice about it. You eat whatever, whatever's put in front of you or whatever your television set tells you to. <laughs> it's so funny because Tony, I just got this package from that same younger brother yesterday, which is a Christmas package and, and lots of lovely fruit. It's all from Texas. And then there were like four things wrapped in plastic and there were two of them were sugar cookies. One was caramel popcorn and another was like sugar coated pretzels. And of course, for me, this is just me and my goofy life. You know, as soon as I see stuff wrapped with that much plastic, I'm like, ah, but then, you know, when I look, it's like, this is all processed food. And, you know, and I've told them in the past, it's like, I don't eat processed food. So I just give it away to either the food bank or to somebody who does eat processed food. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's exactly like you just said, this is just the norm. We're just going to, we're just going to go ahead and just whatever's in front of us, we're going to consume it because we are consumers. You know, it, it's always a trade-off, you know, satisfying your sensual cravings and balancing that with your respect and care for your overall well-being. Yeah, exactly. So I know our time's getting limited here. And first, I want to congratulate you because together we have successfully avoided the Christmas trap <laughs> during this time of year, which is exactly what I've been doing on my show. In fact, this week I'm going to do a show on in praise of darkness because we're in these long nights this time of year and still kind of avoiding the Christmas thing. Anyhow, I do have a last poem from Morton Marcus, and actually this one's in the Cricum of the Soul, but it's named My Father's Hobby, which does have a little hint at the end, and it's a sweet hint, which goes in the Christmas direction, but not in a big way. It, it doesn't really have to do with the holiday. So here's the poem, My Father's Hobby. My father's hobby was collecting sneezes. No stamps or coins for him. The stuff of life, he said, of life. My mother and brothers shook their heads. His friends smirked, but he hurt no one, was an honest electrician, and everyone eventually shrugged it off as a harmless quirk. As his closest friend, Manny Borak, told my mom, it could be worse. Dad would mount the sneezes on glass slides he carried in his pockets everywhere he went. Some sneezes resembled flower petals, others seafoam, amoebas, insect wings, still others fan-shaped, fingerless, foidal hands, splatters of raindrops or empty cocoons. Next, he stained the specimens magenta, turquoise, egg yolk yellow, and placed them in the glass cases that stood in the rooms. Late at night when the family slept, he'd arrange handfuls of the slides on the light table in his study and, switching off the lamp, he would peer down at them and smile. One night, a small boy with bad dreams, I crept, terrified, through the darkened house to the study. He was bent over his collection, his face surrounded by darkness, flowing in the table's light as his lips murmured something again and again. I slid my small hand into his and listened. He was rocking back and forth, bowing to the slides. God bless you, he was saying. God bless. 
Yeah, I remember that poem. I I, I like that. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. That is just so sweet. And there's all the idiosyncratic part of being human, you know, with his, you know, quirky hobby. And at the same time, because it was somebody's sneeze, it's what we would do, of course, when we were present with that sneeze, but he was doing it even over time to still say, God bless you, God bless. You know, to me, that's really touching. Mm -hmm. And I have a parting poem as well. Great. It's another one by Rebecca Elson, since she liked her other one. It's titled Antidotes to Fear of Death. Mm. Sometimes as an antidote to fear of death, I eat the stars. Those mm. nights lying on my back, I suck them from the quenching dark till they are all, all inside me. Pepper hot and sharp. Sometimes instead, I stir myself into a universe still young, still warm as blood. No outer space, just space. The light of all the not yet stars, drifting like a bright mist, and all of us and everything already there, but unconstrained by form. And sometimes it's enough to lie down here on earth beside our long ancestral bones, to walk across the cobble fields of our discarded skulls, each like a treasure, like a chrysalis, thinking whatever left these husks flew off on bright wings. Wow, that's nice. I love that from stardust to like reincarnating as stars. That's fantastic. So I guess you're going to have to go researching Rebecca Elson. <laughs> I will. I will, because I'm always delighted, you know, every week. And I think you, you try and do the same thing, because, of course, you're working with a different author every week. So, like, how can I always do something a little bit different and always bringing in new things? Because I always love that's part of the thing about poetry. I certainly know a lot about a lot of poets, but I don't know them all by any means. And it's always great to discover someone new. So thank you for that, Tonio. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I would say I get most of my poetry from the Brain Pickings blog, which is oh yeah, yeah. which has been renamed The Marginalia now by uh, oh. Maria Popov. Yeah, yeah. So Tonio, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. I love doing this with you and any old time, you know, let me know. And in the meantime, I hope you have a great remainder of the year during these gorgeous dark days. And to you as well, my my dear friend and soul brother. And I'll leave you with, with a, uh, a haiku by a friend of mine who lives around here. He read this many years ago at one of his poetry readings, and it just struck me. Fingernail clippings on a blank sheet of paper. Now I've really got something. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> thank you so much, Tonio. And thank you again, Rick Halterman. It's it's always so great to talk with you. And this this one has been a distinct pleasure because we've we've allowed ourselves to really focus on the poetry. Yes. And, you know, for me, 
the more poetry there is in the world, the better it is. So I look forward to the next time we uh, collaborate on on another poetry theme. Sounds great. Any old time. And have a good December back there. And you too. And it's great to yes. do this with you. And thank you for being alive so I can do this. My pleasure. And thank you for being alive so All right. we can do this. All right. Take care, brother. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. This show was meant to air last Friday. Actually, I think it started for a few minutes before the power went out. And that was a rather interesting storm. My power went out that morning. I think I listened to the first five minutes of my show, mainly because I wanted to hear the weather. And of course, Bob's phone was knocked out as was my own. Then my power went out shortly after that and was out for a solid four days. Didn't come on until Tuesday. And so that was an interesting storm and perhaps a sign of things to come, considering that tomorrow is New Year's Eve and the following day, the first day of 2023. May it be a good year. But then again, we're living in interesting times. And isn't it a curse to be born into and to be living in interesting times? I think it's a curse and a blessing, a blessing and a curse. So may this coming year be a blessing and a curse. I don't think we can have one without the other. So embrace it all. Enjoy it all. Make the most of it all. and. We'll see what happens. And most of all, we'll see how we respond to what happens. And I'll see you again on the other side.
Happy day. Oh.